sermon series called Superman. If uh, you're just joining us for the first time, you can catch up online and things like that. But don't worry. Don't feel like you're behind or anything. Every sermon kind of stands on its own in, uh, in a series like this. And we've been talking about uh, who Jesus really is. Like if you just met him on the street, what kind of a person would you meet? And what would he be about? You know what I mean? So uh, we're, we're discussing mostly like the, the human sort of qualities, the personality of Jesus. Uh, because I think uh, there's nothing really more important than, than really knowing who Jesus is, what, what his character is, if we're going to be serious about our faith. And so I'll start today with a little, uh, little story that came to mind this week about uh, the, the thing we're going to talk about today, which is the religion of Jesus. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, in 2002, my wife, Giovanna, who you just met, and I, we were, uh, we were in Kansas City. We were going to seminary. We just started seminary. And, uh, and we were appointed to, to a church uh, in the roughest part of Kansas City. Now, that was by far the roughest place I'd ever lived. I'd lived in Red Lick, Texas, population 268, and in Mooringsport, Louisiana, population 300 and something. But uh, this part of Kansas City was just hardcore. There was a couple of active drug house operations just across the street. Everybody knew it. There was another house down the street that was like an FBI outpost. And they never did anything about the other two houses. I never, never understood that, but they just kind of let it go. And uh, to my left, like if I was sitting on my porch, my neighbor to my left was, uh, <laughs> was a redneck named Jesse who lived there with his family and Jesse flew the Confederate flag on his front porch for the whole world to see in the most diverse neighborhood of Kansas City, by the way. And uh, flew his, his Confederate flag. He had a, he had a pit bull uh, chained to a tree in the front yard. And he cleaned his guns on his front porch, if that tells you anything about, about Jesse. Um, sometime after the service, I'll tell you about the first time they fed my, my Ecuadorian wife, deer chili, without telling her it was deer chili. Uh, that was an adventure. Uh, there was one time, uh, there were always these, uh, these car chases, police chases, right? And there were always, like, it seemed like every other night, uh, uh, chases either on, on foot uh, or through the neighborhood on cars. And one time this kid was being chased by the police and, and uh, he was on foot. And he ran through our yard into Jesse's yard and in, ran in the, like the back of Jesse's house down the steps that went to his basement and went inside, broke into Jesse's basement. And I just thought, kid, you have no idea what you're doing. You know, like, you're safer with the police. Like, just surrender. You know, uh, he had no idea. You know, he didn't know Jesse, but he got to know Jesse. Maybe that, uh, maybe that scared him straight. You know, maybe he's like a you know, grad student now or something. Who knows? But uh, maybe, maybe Jesse... Uh, did some good there. Who knows? But there was always like graffiti everywhere. The Latin Kings were the, the gang that had like territory, you know, where we were. They would always graffiti our garage, which just drove me crazy. But every other week I would have Latin Kings graffiti on my garage. The neighborhood was just hurting. And the church we were assigned to wasn't really helping. Not anymore, at least. I think they used to be a positive force in that community. Back in the 50s, they had hundreds of people. And the community around them looked like them. It was back when the community was like working, middle class, working white folks, right? So, uh, and, you know, then the church was thriving, it was positive force, I suppose. But, but over the years, the community changed and the church didn't. You ever seen that happen? The community changed, the church didn't. And, and so by the time we were assigned to serve this church as pastors, there was like 35 members left. And the youngest was in her 50s. And she was the baby of the congregation. And, you know, and, and, and it was just kind of a sad 
um, place uh, to be, and, and they were doing their best, uh, I suppose, but Gio and I, we felt called to do something more. And because we're both bilingual and the community was 75% Hispanic, we thought, well, let's start an a ESL class, an English class, right? English is a second language. And we, we did. We did that. And then that class became a Bible study, and that Bible study became a worshiping community, like, uh, you know, a church. And uh, Gio did most of the work with this, uh, with this new church, but I was along for the ride. I was amazed by the, the growth. We, we started in our homes, and then we outgrew our homes, and we needed to move this community, this Spanish-speaking community, into the church building. And I'll, I'll never forget the time we toured our new Hispanic brothers and sisters, first generation, mostly Mexican and Central American immigrants, uh, through this old church building that hadn't been updated in 40 years, you would not believe the wallpaper in this place. And it smelled like death. And, you know, there was like in the sanctuary behind where the choir sat, just to the left of where the preacher preached, there was emerging from the wall in the sanctuary this sculpture that someone had, had made. A member of the congregation had sculpted this sculpture and called it the face of God. And he, and he died and then his wife gave it to the church in his honor, and they hung it there. And this sculpture was just horrific. I just can't even describe to you how scary it was. I don't know if you've ever seen, I hope you've seen The Return of the Jedi, right, where, where Han Solo is frozen in carbonite. Remember the look on his face when he's frozen in carbonite? It's like, like picture that, but with Jesus. It's Jesus' face, and he's dead, like zombie eyes, and he's got a crown of thorns, and there's a spotlight above him shining down, so he's like <laughs> casting shadows like on himself and on the wall, right? Just horrific. And I remember when we showed that to our Hispanic brothers and sisters, the sanctuary, right? That's the first thing they noticed. There was an audible gasp from them, and I remember one of them going, Dios mío. And uh, like not in a good way either, you know, not like Dios mío, like Dios mío. And, you know... I realized right away that this thing, this, the face of God would be a problem. And so we started taking it down before the Spanish services and putting it back up before the English services. Because I knew I'd get in trouble if the English speakers found out that I was taking it down because it was, it was like a sacred cow of the community, right? And so it all was fine until I forgot to put it back up. <laughs> and then I found myself in an, uh, an emergency church council meeting on a Monday night where the sole purpose of the meeting was to find out uh, what had happened to the face of God. And so they, they're, you know, they're cornering me. They know that I had something to do with it. And they're like, so, uh, you know, what happened to the face of God? And I'm like, you guys, first of all, let me just tell you, gosh, we are blessed. You know, there's over 100 people coming to this new congregation that we planted right here in our neighborhood. And there's just all this new life. And you just, you, I'm sure you guys are proud of it, right? And they're like, well, tell us what you did with the face of God. And I'm like, guys, guys, look, seven people accepted Jesus as, as their Savior last night. And, and we had kids running up and down the aisles of this church for the first time in 30 years. You guys, it's the most beautiful thing that you'll ever see. And they said, why do you hate the face of God? And I said, guys, 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 you wouldn't believe. The Bible says be good to immigrants. We're doing that. We're, you know, we're, we're providing these immigrants in our community with a spiritual home. You're doing that. Praise God. And they said, why do you despise the dead and the art they leave behind? And I said, you guys. And it was just one of many fights that we fought. And, and, and it was so intense for these folks that, that we ended up putting the face of God back 
on the wall and moving the Hispanic congregation down to the basement of the church where, of course, it grew because it was all about Jesus and everything that's all about Jesus grows. It's just a cardinal rule of church planting and it outgrew the basement and then there was another church up the street that closed because they had all these sacred cows I'm sure over the years that they clung to and 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 they closed and this Hispanic church acquired that building and 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 sadly a few years later that the older church with the face of God you know it's, it closed it closed its doors in 2006 and about the same year that Hispanic church became the largest Hispanic Methodist church in the state of Missouri and it I'm proud of that part of it but it breaks my heart that we couldn't find a way to keep these two communities together. Because it's not like there were any deal breakers in the mix, right? There, there wasn't a theological divide. There wasn't like a, a political difference here. It was purely about uh, the sentimental virtue of religious tokens. It was about the religious stuff that they had become attached to over the years that they cherished more than this new thing that was happening uh, in, their, in their midst. And it, it, it wasn't, it shouldn't have been a deal breaker, but it became a deal breaker. And, and it breaks my heart because if I've seen it once, I've seen it a thousand times and so have you. You've seen what happens when religion becomes the thing. When religion becomes more than just a vehicle to arrive somewhere else. It becomes the somewhere else. It becomes the end game. It becomes the goal. You've seen what happens when religion becomes the goal. What always happens is that mercy takes a back seat to the rules. Our rules, whatever rules we choose, mercy takes a back seat. And, and, and things like compassion end and walls go up and it never ends well, right? And obviously the big examples of this that we've talked about are big things like the Crusades and, and the Inquisitions and all the things that people uh, right, rightly so hold the church accountable for today. But, but it's not just in history, guys. It's today. Even today in churches and mosques and temples today, this still happens. Religion still leads people to believe so strongly that the way they've always done it is the only way it should be done. And if you don't do it that way or behave that way or fit into our little box, then you are somehow lost or condemned or lacking. That is the power of religion, to drive people apart where they should otherwise be together. And we've seen in our day a wholesale rejection of religion. You, maybe, your friends, probably some of your family have decided utterly to reject religion. This has been a fascinating trend over the last 26 years. In 1990, only 8% of the American population identified as non-religious. And in the last uh, 20 something years, 24, in just 24 years, it went from 8% to 23% of the American population that identifies as non-religious. So th that's a, a tremendous swing, right? It's a 15 point swing in just 24 years. It's unheard of in religious, you know, the history of religious surveys and trends, right? And so it's just this amazing thing that's happened and it's caught everyone uh, by surprise. But I would say it's even more shocking because that 24% or 23% really is the whole American population, including suburban areas and rural areas where I think it's lower than 23%, which means in urban areas like ours, it's higher. And I would be, I would be so brave, I think, as to step out and say in a city like Houston, which is not the Bible Belt, by the way, where half of the young adults in this city moved here from somewhere else and grew up somewhere else and moved here. 
and where there's all this, it's just a global metropolitan city, I would bet that inside the beltway, that number is something more like 40, 45% of non-religious people. And maybe inside the loop even more as you get a younger population, right? It's even more. And so <clears throat> I, think, I think this is a trend uh, we should pay attention to. However, what's really interesting about this to me is that of that group, the non-religious group, only 12% of that group are atheists. And so as religion has gone by the wayside, uh, atheism hasn't really picked up any momentum. And so in 1990, when they started studying this, 2% uh, of the American population identified as atheists. And in 2014, 3% identified as atheists. So do you get these trends aren't, uh, they're, they're not relative to one another. It's, in, it's fascinating that of this group of non-religious Americans, 68% believe in God. 37% say they're spiritual but not religious. 21% of non-religious Americans say they pray every day. That's probably a higher ratio than the people in this room right now who pray every day. 21% say they pray every day and just 12% are agnostics, which means clearly people are falling out of love with religion, but not with God. People are falling out of love with organized religion, but not with God. And when I talk to people who are non-religious or identify as non-religious, I hear three things, and it's pretty much across the board. The things they say about religion can be classified in one of these three classifications. It's hypocrisy, it's history, and it's fanaticism. First of all, there's hypocrisy. There's Christians who preach the Bible but don't live the Bible, right? So they're, uh, you know, judgmental or what have you, and, and they don't back it up with the way that they live their lives. Second, there's history. Um, the history of the church, the history of Christians supporting things that are antithetical to the Bible and to Jesus, you know, uh, the his history of slavery, for example, war, uh, other kinds of injustices and bloodshed. And then uh, finally, there's fanaticism. Most non-religious people I know don't mind the Christian teachings. It's just the Christian people they can't really stomach because the Christian people that they've known are the kinds of Christian people that will, that will tell you everything that you're doing wrong. And all the reasons why you're not right with God without really being humble about their own um, shortcomings. And uh, there's a kind of self-righteous judgmentalism there for a lot of non-religious people. Now, was Jesus non-religious? I think it's a stretch to say he was non-religious. We know that Jesus was Jewish. We know that he was devout in some ways because he's always being, uh, uh, he's always being described as practicing some of the Jewish uh, traditions. So maybe he was devout, but obviously in his teachings we see that Jesus thought religion was a problem. Jesus thought religion was not the solution to people's problems, but that religion was part of the problem. This is clear throughout his teaching. And what's really fascinating when, when you read Jesus' teaching is that he responds directly to all three of these issues that people have with religion. He, all three, he hits head on. So with hypocrisy, he says in Matthew uh, 23, um, verse 15, he says, woe to you, teachers and Pharisees. These are the most religious guys of his day. You're hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Look at Jesus. 
That is some hardcore teaching right there. He's saying that to the most religious people in their presence. Can you imagine Jesus showing up to the prayer breakfast yesterday, you know, with the new president and all this stuff and saying, you are making children of hell. You know, that kind of, can you imagine the look on Franklin Graham's face if Jesus were to say that to the most religious people, most religious leaders in the world today? This is, this is not maybe the meek and mild Jesus you might be accustomed to. He's calling out of religion and the, the desire to convert people to religion. Secondly, it's the history of religion. Jesus knew something about that as well in the same chapter of Matthew. Woe to you Pharisees, hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of, our, of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves, Jesus says, that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. It's like some Clint Eastwood stuff, you know, like Jesus is, I just love, I love these, uh, the tenor, the, the testosterone in Jesus' teaching here. He's not going to have any of it, right? And finally, with fanaticism, Jesus says very simply, Matthew 23, 24, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. And what he's saying here is that you're so careful about the letter of the law, you care so much about enforcing, and they were like a police force. They enforced the letter of the law, but they forgot about the great big heart behind the law. The heart, the reason why God gave the law to begin with was because God desired well-being for the people and God wanted health and long life and, and a sense of holiness for the people. But all that they did was enforce every little letter of the law, straining out gnats, swallowing camels. That's a joke that's hilarious in Aramaic. It doesn't really fly in English as much, but Jesus killed with that joke, trust me, back in the day, all right? So <laughs> I know the feeling, Jesus. So anyway, uh, <laughs> so here's what I want to say is that Jesus may have practiced religion, but he loves people. He may have practiced religion, but he loves people. And if you go home with nothing else today, just remember that phrase. You can write it on your study guide. I gave you a study guide, by the way. I didn't mention it, but you have a half-page study guide where you can keep notes. Jesus may have practiced religion, but Jesus loves people. And whenever there was a choice between religion and people, he chose people every time. And that's what really drove him crazy about religion was religion got in the way of people coming to him. And whenever religion or religious people got in the way of people coming to him, he got the most upset. And because it's more important that people know that they are loved than people know that they are, you know, unholy or somehow unworthy. Now, if we're going to talk about religion all day today, we need to know what we're talking about. So I wanted to define it for us. And this is on your study guides as well on a fill-in-the-blank deal. But I define religion as any system, program, or set of beliefs that offers supernatural rewards in exchange for blind obedience. So the blind obedience comes first, right? And then you get the supernatural rewards because you're blindly obedient. That's my best working definition, I think, of religion. And there's three things, just like there's three things today that bother people about religion, there's three things that bother Jesus about religion in his day. First, what bothered him the most was when preachers like me put salvation up for sale. When we make it seem like the more you give to God, the more he loves you. Or the more likely it is that he'll save you. The one story that everybody remembers of Jesus getting mad, if I asked you about a time Jesus got mad, what would you tell me? 
the temple, right? Turning over tables. We all remember him turning over tables in the temple. It's an awesome story, but you got to really understand what's happening. He's turning over tables of guys that are called money changers. So they're selling something. They're cashiers. And their money is going everywhere. And then in John's gospel, Jesus takes like some kind of a plant and he makes a whip out of it and starts chasing dudes with a whip in the temple, in the house of God, like the most holy place in the world for his religion. He makes a whip and starts whipping dudes. Can you picture it? Jesus Christ whipping dudes in the temple. And they're all leaving. And then he turns on the animals and starts whipping the animals too. You get out of here too. You know, that kind of thing is just crazy. And he just, he just whips people like you know, until they're gone. And, and it's really important to know what's, what's upsetting him here is that the religious leaders have put salvation up for sale. They have said, you can't come in and worship God fully until you have completed your tithe. So if you're short on that 10%, Let's settle up right here and then you can go in and worship with all the other righteous people. The other thing they were doing is they were selling sacrifices. And so they were selling all different kinds of animals. And, and, and the better, more expensive animal you had to sacrifice, the more likely it was that you could be forgiven for all the bad things you've done. And so if you could afford a better animal, like a nice, you know, sheep or a lamb or something, then you, you could be forgiven for more. But if all you could swing that day was a pigeon, then you could be forgiven for less, right? And this just drove Jesus up the wall. And Christians, honestly, and, and throughout history have fallen back into this trap of putting salvation up for sale. And if it drove them up the wall then, I think it drives them up the wall now. We always have to be careful about putting salvation uh, up for sale. That's why when we talk about our offering at the church, I'm always very clear this is not something that you're doing to, you know, earn your way into belonging in the community. This is something we do together as a response for what God has already done. Secondly, the second thing that uh, drove Jesus crazy is that religion created insiders and outsiders. It drew very clear lines between who belonged and who didn't. And Jesus is always challenging this. He's always coming in behind the religious guys who are saying, we know the righteous from the unrighteous. And Jesus says, hey, you preachers and priests, uh, you're not going where you think you're going. And then he would turn around to the prostitutes and the thieves and say, you're not going where you think you're going either. He says, you guys are in danger of going to hell, and you all can be assured of spending eternity with me in heaven. He's always questioning the lines we draw with our religion. Thirdly, the thing that bothered Jesus is when religious guys like me use scripture to control people. When the mission of the Bible and interpreting the Bible is to manipulate and control people, Something is, uh, is, Jesus is upset, and it happened a lot in, in Jesus' day. The Bible for Jesus' people was what we call the Old Testament. It was intact. It, was, it existed, and they honored it. And the Pharisees, who were the most religious guys, they memorized more than half of the Old Testament, if you can believe that. They knew it by heart, by memory, the, all the Psalms and the Torah, which is pretty incredible um, to think about. And, uh, and, and the Pharisees would use what they knew of the Bible to control people who didn't have it all memorized. And so they took all the laws and they policed them. They policed the people with God's laws. Even that one law where God specifically says, none of you do anything for a whole day. All of you just take it easy. Don't do anything. That's a law that's really hard to mess up, right? Like, that's one that's hard to get wrong. We get it wrong a lot, but it's hard to get wrong, right? And the Pharisees, ironically, were so intent on nobody working 
on the Sabbath day that they spent every Sabbath day working and watching other people to make sure they're not working on the Sabbath day. And this is what got Jesus in trouble. This, this, the story I'm about to read you happened over and over and over again. Jesus in front of the Pharisees intentionally working on the Sabbath day. And he always had a purpose here. This is from Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue. This is in Capernaum, his headquarters. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. And some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Those are the Pharisees. And so they watched him closely on the Sabbath day to see if he would heal him. On the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked him, Which, Jesus asked the Pharisees, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? In other words, which is good, which is godly on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. So he looked around at them in anger and said, Deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees rejoiced, for their brother was healed. I'm just kidding. The Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So they were so intent on controlling people with something even as simple as Sabbath that they were willing to put Jesus on the cross because he was not cooperating. He was challenging their power. Now, when we talk about God coming to the earth in the form of a man, I think he had many reasons for doing so. And I think at the top of his list was that so that he would know, that we would know that he knows what it's like, that he would walk in our shoes for a while, right? I think at the top of his list was to die for us and atone for our sins. At the very top of his list was to leave the tomb empty and defeat death once and for all. But somewhere near the top of his list of reasons why he put on flesh and came to earth as a man was to put religion back where it belonged, to put religion in its place because it had run amok and it had begun to control people in ways that displeased him. And one of Jesus' top priorities was putting religion back in its place, back where it belonged. And he came to set the record straight about religion, about his word, about the Bible, about the fact that the Bible, although it contains many religious things, is not a religious book. It's not just another religious book. The Bible is so much more. Yes, there are religious elements in the Bible, but there is a clear destination here. There is a clear and distinct movement away from religion and toward this new thing the Bible calls gospel. And if you talk to your non-religious friends about gospel, they'll say you're being religious. You need to inform yourself and them that there is a clear difference between religion and gospel. This is it. Like, this is all of it today. There is a difference between religion and gospel. And every time, even in the Old Testament, when the people want to be religious, just like everybody else, God is nudging them towards something new, something better. And whereas religion is defined as this system where it's, you know, I'll give you this if you do this for me, gospel is defined very simply as good news. The good news of God. And the problem with religion, the number one reason why there are so many people flocking away from religion is because there's no good news there. There's no joy there. There's no life, there's no love in religion, no freedom in religion. And the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they were all about religion. And Jesus wanted to be all about gospel. Some of you grew up in churches that were more pharisaical than they were Christian. Some of you think of the church in that way now. You think of the church as more religious 
than gospel-oriented. And look, that's on us, man. I'm sorry that we have misrepresented the church in such a way. We've misrepresented Jesus in such a way to give you that impression. That it's more about religion than gospel. But please, give me a minute and don't let toxic religion cloud your understanding of gospel. Let me explain the difference very quickly between religion and gospel. Y'all ready? All right. Religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. And the other side of that is that if I don't obey, if I don't act right, then I'm not accepted. And God is mad at me and will punish me if I don't obey. Religion. Gospel says, I obey because I am accepted. I am accepted, so I obey. See, religion is always driven by this sense of fear. It's always motivated by this idea that if I don't do this, then God's going to be angry with me. It's this sense of, 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 of fear and angst. Gospel is not motivated by fear. Gospel is motivated by joy, by confidence. Gospel is motivated by the security that comes from Christ. So religion says, I obey God so that he will give me things, salvation, or he will heal me, or he'll give me that job. And so when I need more from God, I behave better for God. And have you ever done that? I promise God, if you just give me this, then I'll pray every day. You know, that kind of thing. And, and we do that all the time. That's religion. Gospel says, I do what I do. I live the life that I live because I want God to delight in my life. I want to delight God, and I want to delight in God. There is such a clear difference in how we look at this. And this is the most important one. Religion says, how I see myself. How I look at myself is entirely based on how good I am being for God, how hard I'm working for God. And if I'm not doing the right things or doing enough things for God, then I feel terrible about myself. Religion. Gospel. Gospel says the way I feel about myself and how I see myself is based solely around the one who died for me. Because his life was infinitely worthy. And he saw fit. He saw me as worthy enough to lay it down for me. And so my self-image, no matter how I look or how I feel, how others see me, no matter if I'm single and nobody wants to date me, no matter if I'm just surrounded by cats when I'm 80, like no matter, no matter if I'm overweight or underweight, no matter if I'm jobless or successful, it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect how I see myself because the God of the universe came and gave his life for me. And that's enough for me. And that's where I find my self-worth and my identity is in Christ alone. And that's the thing, that's the distinction that we have messed up so often being more religious than gospel-focused, right? We have messed this up. Religious people have done so many awful things to mess this up. And we talked ad nauseum about, about some of the big things we've done in history and the wars and crusades and, and, and things. And you've seen the manipulation of religious people. And you've seen the hateful kinds of sidewalk preachers who say they speak for God but do not. And you've, you've seen religious people doing 
sort of ridiculous things in the, in the name of God to turn people away. And I don't, you know, <laughs> I don't know one person who was brought to Jesus by the Left Behind books, but we just bought those things like nobody's business. You know, like we just, and it was all motivated by fear because Jesus is coming back and he's mad. You know what I mean? Like we got we to gotta get our house in order. And, and we bought so many of those books that they made a movie about it and they put the guy from Growing Pains in it. And then we went to see it because we're religious. We went to see the movie. And if we don't see the movie, God might be upset. Or that's just what Christians do. And so they made another one and they put Nicolas Cage in it. And I almost became an atheist again. Religious people, we just can't help ourselves sometimes. You know, we're so convinced that God is mad at us and that you can never have doubts or questions like about the Bible, for example, that it even means like ignoring what we know to be true from science about like the universe and like the universe can't be more than 6,000 years old because if you add up all the numbers in the Bible, all the years that the Bible lists, there's no more than 6,000 or so. And so you can't say that the, the, the earth is older than 6,000 years or God's going to get mad again. So we got to kind of keep it down, you know, that kind of a thing. And so we created like this creationist museum in Kentucky and we had this display of a little girl playing with a dinosaur in the backyard in the Stone Age, you know, to try to make sense of it all, like to try to help people see Christians are normal too. Oh my Lord, we are not when we give in to religious pressure. It's all self-enforced, right? It doesn't come from anywhere else except ourselves, this idea that we have to please God to be accepted and acceptable What's fascinating is as much as we've done as religious people to mess it up, as much as we've done to try and advance religion at the expense of gospel, gospel refuses to die. Gospel refuses to go away. In fact, there are more gospel-loving Christians in the world today than there ever have been in history. In spite of what the media will tell you about how the church is dying, I'm sorry to tell the media and whoever that there are more gospel-loving Christians and the gospel is impacting the world in more dramatic ways now than ever before in history. And that's in spite of religion, not because of it. So see, sometimes I think, I think this is what's happening. I think sometimes we get it in our heads that just like religion is different from gospel, God is different from Jesus. And I think sometimes we get it in our heads that Jesus is about the gospel, but God is religious. Right? So Jesus is compassionate and forgiving. God is more like dogmatic and judgmental. And Jesus is cool with sinners like us, but God kind of wants to strike us dead. Right? So like God is like almost a semi-abusive father figure and Jesus is like the nice mom that goes behind closed doors. And, I'll talk to him. I'll talk to him. You know, that kind of a thing. And we separate it out. Out of our own fear as if they're two different people, right? And, and, and even Jesus' followers made that same mistake. Even the apostle Philip in John's gospel, uh, chapter 14, verses 8 through 9, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Whoever has seen me has already seen the Father. You see, Philip thought, like many of us, I think, have come to think Jesus is the way to God maybe, but Jesus isn't God. Jesus is merciful, but God is judgmental. 
Jesus isn't God. He came to, he came to save us from God. Most of your non-religious friends, if that's not what you believe, I guarantee you it's what your non-religious friends or kids or coworkers believe that Christians believe. They don't believe it. They just believe that we believe it. You get what I'm saying? That's what they think we're in here talking about right now, is that God was just so angry at us that he didn't know what else to do, and so he sent his son here to take this punishment, his punishment, right? God's punishment, so that he wouldn't beat us up. He beat Jesus up instead. That's what they think we believe about Jesus and God. Look, look, guys, just like Philip told, Jesus told Philip, you still don't get it. I think he would tell us the same thing today. You're still not quite getting it. You're still not quite getting it because whenever you've seen me, you've seen God. You see, Jesus, Jesus didn't come to save us from the way God is. Jesus came to show us the way God is. Do you understand the difference? Jesus came to show us the way God really is and really has been all along. Even though we've misunderstood it or misinterpreted at times, God's unchanging. He's always been this way and Jesus is God's way of saying, here I am. This is the way I am. Dying for you on a cross. Colossians 1 verse 15 and then 19 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God for God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Listen, if you are not religious, if religion makes you crazy and roll your eyes, if when you see a religious guy, a religious leader on TV praying or whatever, and you just kind of roll your eyes and, and shrug, uh, you know, and, and if you've ever been judged or, 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 or pigeonholed by a religious group of people, or if you've ever been excluded by religious people, I've got some good news for you today. And the good news is that you are in the best company. Because Jesus also rolled his eyes at the religious guys of his day. Jesus also found so much of religion disgusting. Jesus also was judged, I think probably judged more harshly than any of us ever will be by religious people, or, or, or I hope so anyway. And uh, he found it entirely frustrating. Jesus walked where you walked today uh, so that you will know today that you are acceptable. Not, not to me not to the church, not to religion. It's way better. It's way better than that. But you are and always have been acceptable to the God who made you. And it's not like, it's not like post-dating a check. He's not saying, I'm saying you're acceptable so that, because uh, I know you're going to get your act together later, or I'm saying you're acceptable once you get your act together. He's saying right now, the you sitting right here, this one, I accept. And I give my life. For this one, so that you would know how loved you are. So that you would know what the true face of God looks like. The religious stuff has stood in your way. You can set it aside. You don't got to believe everything religious people believe to follow Jesus. You can set it aside, peel away the layers, get to the heart of the matter, trust Jesus Trust his path, follow his way, for his way is peace, his way is joy, his way is purpose, his way is life and love. And you can trust Jesus. You can't always trust guys that stand up here and do what I do. You can trust Jesus always <clears throat> because in him you find the face of God. When you find him, you find God. And he invites you not to just act like a Christian so that you get to heaven one day. He invites you to live the gospel 
because you're already in. You're already in. That's good news. You're, your ticket's already punched, man. You got nothing left to prove. You're already in. All you got to do right now is say, Jesus, I believe you and who you are, and I accept your invitation. Thank you, and I'm in. Let's pray together.